You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament, to John chapter 15, the verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." Thus far, our first reading, that from John 15, we turn now to Romans chapter 4, the letter of Paul to the Romans. He's in the middle of the of a section speaking about the necessity and also the character of faith. And so we pick up the thread in chapter 4 at verse 16, where he's speaking about Abraham. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was also about a hundred years old, and that Abraham's, uh, that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not only for him, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Are all men, then, saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, 
God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this afternoon our theme, a theme that comes to us as we look at Lord's Day 7, this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, which focuses on faith. Our theme is that those who belong to Christ must exercise true faith. Now, the first part of that theme, those who belong to Christ, that, of course, brings us back to Lord's Day 1. Lord's Day 1, we confess what's your only comfort in life and death, that I'm not my own, but that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, as we come to Lord's Day 7, are those who must exercise true faith. And as we consider the necessity of this faith, the character of this faith, and the content of this faith, the necessity, the character, and the content, there should be one question that that's in your mind. It's a burning question. It's a, it's a pressing question. And that's the... the question of of how those who belong to christ must exercise true faith stated as a necessity as a demand even and so the question that that immediately arises from it is is how How am I going to do this? If I'm struggling in faith, how am I going to exercise true faith? If I'm not sure about my faith, how am I going to exercise true faith? If I'm being presumptive in it, how am I going to exercise true faith? How? So we begin with the necessity of faith. Now, to understand what's going on here in Lord's Day 7, you have to sort of recognize where we are in the flow of things in Lord's Days 5 and 6, where we learn that in spite of the unity of the human race in Adam, in whom we have all sinned, we've learned that in spite of that, the fact that we are all in Adam lost in sin, at the same time, we're not all lost. That is, all humanity is united in the sin of Adam, but yet there is this great division 
in humanity. Or at least that's what we're getting at in Lord's Day 6 when we learn that that there is a mediator. That everyone is lost in Adam, but yet there is this mediator in whom is found salvation. And so the next logical question that comes in Lord's Day 7, question answer 20, is, okay, if everyone's united in Adam, then is everyone also united in Jesus Christ? Are we all saved? Because Jesus Christ is the great mediator. God sent him into this world. He did everything that was necessary. And so, we all must be saved. And oh, how we wish it were so, don't we? That it were true. That all men were saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam. But the answer that the Lord's Day gives us, the catechism gives us, is as clear as it is biblical. And that answer is no. No, we are all united in Adam, but we are not all united in salvation in Jesus Christ. Why not? Well, in short, because faith is necessary and not all have faith. The necessity of faith is the clear teaching of Scripture. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And we've heard about this necessity in John 15 as well, where Jesus said, Apart from Me, you can do nothing. In fact, a a branch not united to the vine Not bearing fruit is good for nothing except to be cut off and thrown into the fire. The Apostle Paul in his letters was very clear about the necessity of faith for salvation. Romans 1, that famous passage, the righteous will live by faith. And the corollary to that is that if you do not have faith, you will not live. You will be eternally punished. Galatians 2 verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He says elsewhere that apart from Christ, he was lost. His life was rubbish. It was no good. It was not pleasing to God. It was not living in Salvation. And so God's word is clear that faith is necessary. But you, you might ask this question. Why is faith necessary? Why is faith necessary? Okay, so God's word is clear that faith is necessary for salvation. But, but why is, is faith necessary? Has, has God just put faith there as some kind of stumbling block so that not everyone receives salvation? Why does God make, or does God make faith a requirement for salvation? Why doesn't God just save everyone? You've probably thought that before. If you haven't thought it yourself, you've probably heard someone ask you that. Why doesn't God just save everyone? 
Why is faith necessary for salvation? Well, it's a profound question, and it, it moves us into profound topics, the topics of, of election, God's sovereign purpose, plan, and will. It, it moves us into God's sovereignty. It moves us into God's holy and just purposes, the, the sort of things that we don't know because of our limited capacity. The things which God, God's word reveals as much as we need to know, but still leaves so many questions that we cannot answer. It is indeed a question we cannot answer fully. But yet we can begin to answer it by considering how we got to this question. This question of why isn't everyone saved? The question 20 mentions that all men are lost. All men have perished through Adam. And so there's something about Adam that's crucial to consider here. And so let's go back in our minds once again to Adam. Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam, good, righteous, and holy. Adam who fell into sin. What was it? What was that sin that Adam committed when he fell? What happened in the garden that caused all men to perish? Well, throughout history, throughout theology, many people have given many different answers to that question. Augustine said that that sin was pride. Adam thought too highly or reached too highly. He was proud. He sought something he ought not to have sought. And then he fell. Others have said that that sin was rebellion. God gave a command. said, don't touch that fruit. Adam ate from it after Eve had. He rebelled. He disobeyed the first sin then. Is disobedience. Those are aspects of that first sin. There is another aspect, and that is that this sin was unbelief. That first sin was unbelief. Yes, Adam was created good, righteous, and holy. Adam was created 100% fully human. As God intended his very good creation of humanity to be. But although Adam was created like that, he still had to live by faith. That is, he still had to exercise faith every day of his life. And he could exercise perfect faith, perfect trust in God, perfect communion with God every day of his life. He could do it and he had to do it. It was necessary. But at that moment that he fell, he did it. At that moment that he fell, he didn't exercise faith. He exercised unbelief. He didn't pursue that that knowledge of God that builds confidence. Rather, he allowed a, a false knowledge of God 
That knowledge that says that the things that God says may not be true. He allowed that to seep into his mind. He didn't pursue that that confidence in God that inspires knowledge. That trusting in the goodness and, and righteousness and holiness of God for his life. He didn't live by faith. Instead of exercising faith, he exercised unbelief which led to his rebellion and to his fall and to his spiritual death and to the condemnation of all humanity. That's what happened in Adam's sin. What happened as a result of Adam's sin? Again, many answers, many truths of what happened as a result of Adam's sin but perhaps one of the most significant losses that that Adam experienced was that loss of perfect communion and a relationship with God. He lost it immediately. As he sinned and then he fled from God. He lost that perfect communion and relationship with God. And in Adam's fall, we sinned. All, And we share in his unbelief and broken communion with God. We're getting to why faith is necessary. This was Adam's sin. The truth of the gospel is that we know not just one Adam in whom we've all perished, but that we know two Adams. We know a second Adam, Jesus Christ. After the unbelief and rebellion of the first Adam, the second Adam has come to reestablish what Adam lost. And what did Adam lose? He lost faith. He lost that faith which leads to perfect communion with God or faith which leads to any communion with God. The second Adam has come to reestablish our faith and reunite us with the Father in heaven. Do you see how then faith is absolutely crucial? Because you cannot have salvation apart from a relationship with God, and you cannot have a relationship with God apart from faith. Faith is, is, is part of that relationship. It's an inseparable part of that relationship. There's no relationship with God apart from faith. This is what we see as we, as we see Adam falling into sin and that loss of relationship and communion that comes as a result. Without faith, we cannot know and love God. And so faith is, is necessary. It's necessary Because relationship with God is necessary. And so while we are by nature children of Adam, brothers and sisters, by faith, we're grafted into Christ. And we're united with that perfect communion that Christ experiences with the Father through the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. Where he perfectly knows and always trusts the Father. Just as Adam failed to do. And in that relationship where the father lavishes his love upon his son. Those who belong to Christ must exercise true faith. How do we maintain that must aspect? 
we look to Christ, the second Adam, the author and perfecter of our faith. We move now to the character of faith. As we move to the character of faith, it's it's worth mentioning another component of that why is faith necessary question. And that's the component of repentance. This is part of the character of faith, but it, it bridges us between the, the necessity of faith and the character of faith. Repentance. That is, how could anyone come to God without repentance? If we ask the question, why aren't all people saved? It's because people are sinful. People are living in rebellion against God. People hate God. That's the reality. So how can you, how can you be saved? How can you come into a, a loving relationship and communion with God? You can only come there through re- repentance. If someone who shares in the condemnation of Adam will not repent, how can they be received by God? They cannot. Repentance is a necessary component of faith. The components of faith that uh, that the Heidelberg Catechism focuses on famously are the characteristics of knowledge and confidence. And both of these components are clearly seen in Scripture. There is a knowledge component of faith and there is a confidence component of faith. And in fact, they're, they're totally intertwined. You can't have one without the other. John 17 verse 3, with respect to that knowledge component, says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. To that confidence component, we go to our second reading of Romans chapter 4 regarding Abraham in, in verse 20. That Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded being fully confident that God had the power to do what he had promised. True faith is something that has an element both of knowledge and of confidence. In fact, in order for it to be true faith, it has to have both of these elements. If it doesn't have both of them, they become unhinged from each other, then it's not true faith anymore. And in fact, the catechism immediately avoids any kind of dichotomy between knowledge and confidence when it says true faith is a sure knowledge. True faith is, you might say, a confident knowledge. This kind of knowledge, this is the kind of knowledge that's a component of true faith. See, knowledge Without confidence or certainty, it is not faith. Knowledge without confidence or certainty is not faith. This kind of knowledge may know a lot about God, may know many things about God. This kind of knowledge may know the Bible inside out and backwards. It may know theology, may be an expert in theology. It may know about God, even confess that God exists, but it's not faith. James makes clear that even the demons have this kind of knowledge where they're certain that God exists, but it's not true faith. 
This kind of knowledge is not saving knowledge. It's an abstraction. It's an abstraction. It's an abstract knowledge. It's knowledge without relationship. So that's where the confidence comes from. Brothers and sisters, we need to be aware ourselves about this kind of knowledge. Because it's very easy for an abstract knowledge of God and of the things of God to look like true faith. It's very easy to to learn about God and the things of God because we're interested in those things, because it's sort of delightful for the mind. Fill our minds, we can impress other people with our knowledge. But to have a knowledge that, that is separate from relationship with God. True faith contains not an abstract knowledge, but a personal and relational knowledge. The knowledge of true faith is a sure knowledge because it's rooted in relationship with the true, the true and living God. The knowledge of true faith always seeks certainty in who God is and in relationship with God. In, in the God who establishes covenant with us. In the God who establishes relationship with us. That knowledge component of true faith is one that is always seeking that relationship and and finding comfort and assurance in that. And now having said that, we must also be careful. We must take care. Because as the Canons of Dort makes clear, even true believers do not always experience that assurance that comes by faith. It's possible for true believers at times to to question and to wonder. The the Psalms are full of those questions and those wonderings. So, that assurance is not always fully there. But the knowledge of true faith always seeks that assurance in the person of God. So the person who's struggling with assurance is not simply going and continuing to fill their mind, but within that struggle, it is a struggle between them and the living God, and they are going to Him to find assurance in Him. And the promise of the Gospel is that they will not remain forever without assurance. That God will grant them the assurance that they seek. You may not always experience in a moment, but when you seek it, you will find it. On the other hand, certainty without knowledge is not true faith. It may be mysticism. Certainty without knowledge. In mysticism, our confidence becomes unmoored from, from God's word or, or from God's authority. And we seek our certainty not with God or, or in his word as he gives it to us, but, but in something else, in ourselves. Quite often, or our own experiences. In the past, that, that certainty was expressed in terms of, of visions and dreams and voices from God. God told me this. I had a dream about this. My certainty rests in, in my experience of this. I know this to be true, and so I'm going to act according to it, rather than saying, I know God and His Word to be true. I'm going to act according to that. 
So mysticism is a confidence that's unmoored from God's word in which we, we put weight on our own experiences. That certainty without knowledge might also be misplaced knowledge, where we're looking for certainty not with God and his word, but, but somewhere else. Perhaps in our own knowledge, or in the knowledge of this world, and in, in what most other people believe to be true. This is rationalism. It's a confidence not in God's word, but in the power of our own mind, or, or in the power of philosophy, or of reason. So it's a knowledge in the wrong place. True faith is a confidence that's built in dependence upon God and in what we receive from the hand of God. Mysticism is dependence on experience. Rationalism is dependent on thought. True faith is dependent on God. So true faith doesn't have knowledge and confidence as as two options. I'm sort of more of a knowledge Christian. I'm sort of more of a confidence Christian. No, these are necessary twin components of faith. So where does this lead us? This knowledge-seeking relationship and this certainty-seeking proper authority. This leads us to Jesus Christ. In him is found true faith. If our faith will be true, it will be a knowing that's not just abstract doctrine, but it will be knowing the personal God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And if our faith will be true, it will not be just a certainty, but a certainty that rests only in God. A certainty that rests in Jesus Christ, in in who Christ is, and in what Christ has done for us. In answer to that, how must must a Christian exercise true faith? It is by looking to Christ. In Him we find our proper knowledge and our proper confidence coming together in true faith. This leads us then to our third point, the content of faith. Question answer 22 in Lord's Day 7 mentions what a Christian must believe. But actually in in 21 already, we have that, that content of faith already being filled in. And so we'll consider from question and answer 21, most of all, this content of faith because we will spend many weeks with the rest of the Lord's days considering the other content that's given to us in the Apostles' Creed. There's there's four overlapping components of of content, the content of true faith that's given us here. The, The first one, the first content, you might say, of true faith is simply God. True faith is faith that finds its fulfillment, finds its end, In God. That's very clear here in answer 20. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. It is at the same time a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins. The necessary end, the only end of true faith is God, the one true God. More narrower than that, 
the content, the second overlapping content of our faith is God's word. Answer 21 teaches that true faith is the sure knowledge of what God has revealed to us in his word. And so faith seeks out God's word and finds its knowledge and its confidence there in God's word. We need to remember that. If you would, turn with me to the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession, Article 2 and 5, we're going to look at very briefly. Page 501 of your Book of Praise. It can sometimes become unclear or perhaps confusing to us where the content of our faith is to be found. Because we read in Article 2 that God actually makes himself known to us by two means. The first means that God makes himself known to us is through the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. And the second means by which God makes himself known to us is, as you look further, if you flip the page over in your book of praise, page 502, in Article 2, second, God makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. So God reveals himself in creation, preservation, and government of the universe, and God also more fully reveals himself in his word. And so, to which one does our faith go? Should we place our faith in in God as he revealed himself in his creation? Or should we place our, our faith in God as he's revealed himself to us in his word? Or is there a problem? How do we work this? Well, we receive direction, if we go a little further, same page, 502, Article 5 of the Belgian Confession. In Article 5, we read this. We receive these books, the books of the Bible, God's Word, and only these as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. And so Article 5 decides the matter. Our faith, for its regulation, foundation, confirmation, basically what the Belgian Confession is saying here is all aspects of our faith, it looks to God's Word. Through God's Word is our faith built and fed. And now if you go back to Article 2, to that first means of revelation, you'll see that actually as the Belgian Confession discusses these two means, it discusses them in very two very different ways. That first means, the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is bef- wherein all creatures great and small are so many letters leading us to perceive clearly God's invisible qualities. It, it sounds quite wonderful. But then we read in the very next sentence, All these things are sufficient to convict men and to leave them without excuse. So the result of only God's revelation through the creation, preservation, and government of the universe is in fact not salvation, but is condemnation. This is why God has given us his word. The problem, however, isn't with God's creation. That's quite clear from Article 2 and from the Word of God. The problem is with us and our hearts. 
The problem is that we warp and distort. And in Article 2 of the Belgian Confession, Romans 1, verse 20 is referenced. And in Romans 1, verse 20, Paul says that God makes himself clearly known in creation. But the problem with us is that we warp our understanding of creation so that we don't serve and worship and glorify God, but rather we start to worship and serve created things rather than God who is forever praised. And so we go completely off track. But God has not left us there. God works through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. God has given us his word that we might not be lost, but rather that he would communicate to us the salvation that exists for us. And he would communicate to us as we come to the third overlapping focus of our faith, the gospel. So first God, then God's word. Now what God's word communicates to us, the gospel. You see, scripture isn't a collection of random thoughts and facts and ideas. It's not just nice books that have been put together to tell us nice history about things that are important in the past. But rather, what scripture communicates to us unceasingly on every page is the gospel. From the first page to the last, what scripture is communicating to us is the gospel. This is why we need God's revelation in his word, because it communicates to us the gospel of salvation. The good news regarding God's work in giving us Salvation, And this salvation can be summed up in one word, Christ. Christ is revealed to us on every page of Scripture. All Scripture points to Christ and anticipates Christ and prepares for Christ and calls out for Christ and reveals Christ and heralds Christ and glories in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the risen King. The one in whom all our hope is found. We come then to the last focus of our faith, the promises of the gospel. Although that good news is spoken of, revealed on every page of scripture, there is a sense in which that good news is not enough course it is sufficient for our salvation but it's not sufficient for all people that christ has died as the catechism stated all men are not saved by christ just as they perished through adam christ has died but many live as though he hasn't Many reject the truth. Many reject the salvation that God has accomplished through it. Many don't exercise faith. They don't receive forgiveness. They don't find assurance. They don't experience hope. These are people without faith. Because the faith that the Holy Spirit works in us, this faith which is a gift from God and a supernatural work of God, it's a miracle. It's the work of God. This faith that God plants in our hearts 
is like, is like a vacuum, for lack of a better picture. That is, faith seeks out something to grab hold of. True faith seeks out the promises of the gospel to hang on to him. Faith is not satisfied until it's grabbing hold of those promises that God's word reveals. That's what true faith does. God reveals the gospel in his word and true faith takes that word and grabs hold of those promises and doesn't let go. Like a dog on a bone. Have you ever tried to take a bone away from a dog? That's really hard. A dog sees a bone and it just goes after it. That's the only thing it wants. It grabs hold of it and you can try all you want, but you never get it out of its hand. That's what true faith does. Takes God as he's revealed himself in his word, takes those promises that he's given and it just grabs hold of them, latches onto them, lives by them. What God, through his word, through this gospel of his son, holds out to us are the promises of the gospel. Promises like the forgiveness of your sins. Promises like an everlasting righteousness. A a perfection that in spite of what you do and evidence to the contrary sometimes in your lives, you hold By faith in Jesus Christ, because God has declared you righteous in Christ. Promises like eternal salvation. That's given by God's grace. All those promises are yes in Christ. And so what true faith does is it reaches out like that dog grabs hold of Christ. True faith, faith worked by the divine power of God, seeks out Christ. And when it lays hold of him, it is true faith, and it never lets go. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.